This is the Case Doc Report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case Dot Report. My name is Callum Swift and I'm delighted to have you with us. We're back with another trauma episode this month. The scene is a district level ED, the time is midnight. Dr. Owen O'Keen, the lone registrar in charge of the ED, is staring mournfully down the list of category three ambulatory back pain patients waiting for his attention when the pre-alert phone mercifully rings. Hey Owen, welcome to the Case Dot Report. It's great to have you on, and congratulations on being the new trauma lead for the podcast. We've got a really juicy trauma to kick things off, so um, we crack on. Yeah, looking forward to it. Can't wait to get stuck in. So uh, you're the night reg in a regional hospital, and you receive a patient um, or pre-alert for a patient at around midnight um, that there's been a road traffic collision um, with a single casualty. Patient has a deformed left ankle, shortening of the right leg, and thigh swelling. Vitals are heart rate of 120, blood pressure of 110 over 60, temp of 35, SATs of 99 on room air, and a GCS of 15. Their ETA is 20 minutes. Okay, so the first thing is that the hospital we're at this night has no formal trauma team. Uh, we have an in-house surgical and orthopedic SHO with off-site registrars. Uh, so the first thing I would do is organize my ED team and environment. Um, I have an SHO and two nurses. I'd want to get my rhesus bay organized, assign roles, have IVCs, medication now like TXA drawn up and ready. Um, I call blood transfusion and radiology and put them on standby as well. Super. So the paramedics arrive uh, with the patients and uh, ready to give you a handover. Okay. So I would ask for quiet so that the whole team can hear handover before we transfer the patient. Great. So the paramedics have the whole team's attention and they proceed with the handover. So the mechanism was a car which went off the back road in heavy rain, went through a ditch and then hit a tree, a significant intrusion of the passenger compartments and there was a prolonged extraction. Injuries identified are a deformed left ankle and shortening of the right thigh. And the vital signs are uh, heart rate of 130, blood pressure of 110 over 50, temp of 35, SATs of 90% on room air, GCS of 15 uh, with severe agitation from pain. Treatment applied so far, or given so far, is a back mattress and a hard collar, a gram of TXA, paracetamol, one gram, and five milligrams of morphine. The patient doesn't have any allergies, no known uh, medications. There is significant background medical history of transposition of the great vessels, which was surgically corrected in childhood, but the patient has had any, hasn't had any issues since then. And there's another minor injury uh, casualty en route from the same RTC. Okay, so immediately there's a couple of things from that handover that make me concerned. Uh, we have a high energy mechanism. We've had significant damage to the passenger compartment with prolonged extraction and abnormal vital signs as well. Um, so I have all that in the back of my mind as we're transferring the patient and as we start our primary serve. Uh, we design the SHO to start the primary serve. We get one of the nurses to attach continuous monitoring and the other nurse to get IV access 
Uh, ideally, we'd like to get two large bore IV cannulas and we'd want to take blood for a venous blood gas, full blood gout, coagulation studies, renal profile and cross match. And once we have IV access, we'd also get our TXA infusion started. As we start with our primary survey, is there any significant external catastrophic hemorrhage? Uh, nope. So there's no significant bleeding. Patient's clothes are uh, not covered in blood. There's a little bit of um, oozing from the left ankle fracture, but it's been dressed and the, the dressings are, um, are not soaked. So no significant external bleeding. Okay. Then as we're assessing the airway, is the patient speaking to us normally? Is there any stride or other added sounds? Yep, they're awake um, alerts. They're complaining of a lot of pain, specifically of the ankle, but um, no concern about their airway. So we've no media concern regarding the airway. She is in pain, so I'd want to give her some analgesia. Uh, I think fentanyl is probably a good choice here because strong opiate analgesia, short acting, so we can titrate it to effect. Uh, so we'd ask someone to get that drawn up and ready, um, and we'd proceed to assess the patient's breathing. Um, what I'd look for is the work of breathing. Is there symmetric chest rise, any deformity in the chest wall, bruising, paradoxical chest movement? Um, you'd want to palpate, see is there any tenderness, crepitus present, uh, auscultate for air entry at the bases and the apices. Um, and luckily on this night, our SHO is a C-STEM trainee who's recently got their level one sign off. Uh, so they are able to do a point of care ultrasound, scan the lung apices for lung sliding and look at the bases for hemothoraces bilaterally. Yeah, so really thorough um, chest exam there. Um, on, on inspection, just some bruising across the sternum, but um, normal kind of work of breathing, no paradoxical movements, no asymmetry between the sides, um, some tenderness um, anteriorly on palpation, but um, no crepitus and um, normal air entry on the, the apices and the bases. So reassuring chest exam. Okay. So the next we do our circulation exam to see if there are any hemorrhage concerns. So um, we look at the patient's general appearance. Do they appear pale, clammy when we assess them from the end of the bed? Are their peripheries cool? Uh, what's their cap refill time, central and peripherally? Um, are they alert or are they confused? Um, we want to look carefully for any external hemorrhage, paying attention to any scalp hematomas, uh, be mindful of oozing from the occiput or the back when the patient is supine and we can't see them. You might want to look under any dressings that have been applied pre-hospital uh, to make sure there's no arterial bleeding. Then we'd want to examine the abdomen, look for any external bruising, palpate for tenderness. Um, when we come to the pelvis, if there's a binder on, I would leave it on and just making sure it's in the correct position over the trochanters. If there's no binder on, I'd want to apply one at this stage. Um, and then finally, look at the long bones for any deformity or swelling. And then our C-STEM training can use the point of care ultrasound to look for any evidence of pericardial, intra-abdominal free fluid. While our primary survey is ongoing, our nurses have gotten IV access and hopefully started that TXA infusion. And we'll hopefully have a blood gas result back at this stage as well. Yeah, so um, some significant findings on your kind of circulation exam. The, um, uh, there's no external hemorrhage, but the patient has signs of shock. So cool peripheries, prolonged capillary refill time, three seconds, um, a seatbelt sign across the abdomen, and there's mild kind of generalized tenderness. There's also evidence of a long bone fracture with um, kind of significant thigh swelling on the right and some bruising developing. 
your pocus is uh, reassuring in the chest. There's lung sliding and, and no uh, spine sign on the right or left upper quadrant. So it doesn't look like there's big hemothoraces. Looking at the abdomen, there's no significant, there's no free fluid seen either. Your VBG is back and it's a pH of 7.3, base excess of minus 3, hemoglobin of 12, glucose of 5, and lactate of 3, and a normal sodium and potassium. So we have significant finders here. The patient likely has femoral fracture on the right, as well as this fracture dislocation on the left side, um, and clinically has signs of shock with tachycardia, um, the seatbelt sign, I'd have a high suspicion for a significant intra-abdominal injury. Next, we're going to do our assessment for a level of consciousness, do brief assessment of parents sensation in the limbs and check neurovascular status below those limb injuries and um, we'd then like to do our log roll check the back for any signs of injury and check for vertebral tenderness uh, from the top of the cervical spine to the bottom of the lumbar vertebrae yeah so the patient gcs is 15 and um, they don't have any focal neurology um, and they've got normal neurovascular assessment of their um, lower limbs even below the open ankle fracture um, but it is clearly dislocated and you are kind of worried about the state of that left foot. But um, at the moment, there's good blood flow to the toes. So immediate things we're going to do once we have our IV access is we want to get the patient warm. So if the wet clothes have not been removed at this stage, we'd like to get those off, dry the patient, uh, start active rewarming. We'd like to get that left ankle fracture relocated um, and in a back slab which will help an analgesia and ensure that the distal circulation of that foot is restored um, if there's any open injury there we want to get that irrigation addressed before we put our back slab on um, and while we're doing all that we have to be conscious that we're maintaining our spinal precautions um, this is usually a good point then to kind of update the team on our assessment so far plan what we're going to do next um verbalizing this at this stage make sure that everyone's on the same page thinking the same things and it also gives the other team members an opportunity to contribute anything that um, they've been thinking of maybe they haven't verbalized at this stage um, overall our findings are consistent with a shock patient uh, we want to contact radiology for trauma series ct this means getting a ct of the brain c-spine thorax abdomen and pelvis with contrast um, and while we're on our way back from CT, we want to get plain x-rays of those limb injuries. Um, while we're waiting for CT to be ready and organized, uh, we'll contact the in-house SHOs for orthopedic and general surgery uh, so that they can inform their seniors, get them coming in. Um, and I'd also contact the IC reg as this patient is likely to need to go to either theater or critical care. Um, so are CT ready for us and how's our patient looking? Yeah, so the patient's much happier than now that you've given her some fentanyl. Um, they vital signs uh, kind of stably unstable. So heart rate's still 130, but blood pressure's holding up and your capillary refill time's still three seconds. Um, so CT are ready, get them through um, and you get a just a quick read of it yourself. It doesn't look like there's any significant intracranial injury or um, bleed. And the chest, there's no pneumothoraces you can see and no large hemothoraces or free fluid in the abdomen. So you transfer the patient back to ED and you get a phone call from the radiology reg just with a, a wet read of 
CT brain nil acute, CTC spine, no fracture seen, a few minor things in the chest with an anterior compression fracture of T10, no pneumothoraces or effusions, um, some early signs of uh, basolateral exorcist and possible bilateral pulmonary contusions or aspiration. It's trace-free fluid in the abdomen, no active extravation um, and no evidence of liver or spleen injury. Um, there's some subtle edema around one of the loops of small bowel, but it's difficult to um, interpret further. And then you get your x-rays on the way back and you've got plain films for sure, displaced mid-shaft uh, fracture of the right femur and a trimalleolar fracture of the left ankle. Okay, so while our CT doesn't show anything that requires immediate intervention, there are some findings that we would need to be concerned about. So those pulmonary contusions are likely to develop further. Patients likely to need supplemental oxygen or even ventilatory support as they progress. Um, and while there's no evidence of active extravasation on the CT, we do have free fluid in the abdomen and we don't know for certain where they're coming from. So you do want your senior general surgical reg uh, to examine the patient, be actively involved in their care and probably speaking to radiology themselves to see if further imaging is needed or likely to add anything um, or if maybe an interval scan will be needed um, after a certain amount of time. Um, once we're back in Reese's as well, we want to get a thymosplint on for the femoral fracture. Um, I'd probably also cover antibiotics as well because we have an open fracture and we have this likely bowel injury as well with the edema around the bowel and free fluid in the abdomen. Once we've got all those interventions done, we want to get the patient transferred to a critical care environment. So that would probably be a HTU in the hospital we're in tonight yeah so that's great all that gets done and um the patient leaves your care and you follow up with the icu reg on just to see how they got on and uh, they were transferred to another hospital the following day for fixation of the ankle and femur fractures and for kind of intensive care because they were kind of deteriorating with worsening uh you know increasing heart rates and falling blood pressures it's kind of evolving sepsis secondary to peritonitis um, and then ended up needing actually a bowel resection um, with a, an anastomosis. Ended up having quite a long uh, critical care admission um, to have lots of IR drains um, for collections in the abdomen, two more trips to theatre um, for these intra-abdominal complications. And finally, she was able to be transferred back to your hospital for kind of a prolonged rehab course. So really significant hospital uh, journey in the end for the, for the injuries that she had. So well done, excellently managed, um, and lots of really interesting stuff to discuss, I think, from that case. I mean, the first thing I noted, you know, and this is, we've all experienced this in hospitals, even the big ones at night, um, and certainly the regional hospitals, um, we don't have established trauma teams in Ireland, even in the, the trauma centers, it's, it's hit and miss sometimes who attends um, and certainly in the regional hospitals, um, it's unlikely you're going to get anyone other than potentially the ICU or anesthetics reg down if you put out a trauma call. Um, so you have to manage the patients with the resources that you have. Um, and, and as you said, in, in this instance, it was you, the reg and an SHO and two nurses, which would be quite reflective of um, how many traumas are managed in Ireland, even the reasonably high acuity ones. And like this lady, you know, she has significant mechanisms of injury and tachycardic and certainly on a clinical exam, evidence of shock. So 
you know, really sick trauma patient. Have you got any framework um, that you use to prepare yourself or your team? Yeah. And as you say, a lot of those things were even evident pre-hospital. So on the pre-alert you got in, you know, major trauma centers in the UK, that would probably have been enough to activate your major trauma team. And you probably would have had a lot more pairs of hands waiting to receive the patient. Um, and while this patient thankfully didn't need chest strains, you know, they, you rapidly run out of hands and there's an awful lot of things that need to be done in a short space of time. Um, so, yeah, depending on where you are and the time of day or night, uh, it can be challenging to organize your team. Uh, I think the zero point survey, so that idea of getting yourself, your team, your environment ready before the patient arrives, like even a very short pre-alert with five minutes to prepare can just make a big difference, I think, in terms of everyone getting mentally ready to receive this patient and thinking about what, you know, you have to do immediately after they arrive and in the first couple of minutes of arrival. Uh, I don't know, is that your experience as well? Yeah, certainly. And you've also got to think of, you know, anticipate the future. Think, well, what, do, what am I going to need in uh, 10 minutes time or half an hour's time? So things like calling the radiologist and telling them to or asking them to come in um, and calling the surgical regs and ask, telling them that there's a sick trauma patient on the way, um, especially if they're very sick. So this patient, you probably um, with these vital signs would be, you know, told by the surgical reg to get the SHO to see them and get them scanned and stuff first, which is not unreasonable. But if you had someone who was clearly very unstable, I would want to just go straight to the the top of the food chain, even calling consultants. Certainly some of the sickest traumas I've been involved with, the early escalation to the various specialties consultants was a huge help. And having you know ICU consultants there and surgical consultants when someone's very unstable. But, you know, I don't think in this case that would be necessary, but just having that anticipation of, of what's coming down the line. And obviously this patient's getting a CT. So um, the sooner you get the radiologist in, the better. Absolutely, yeah. And even, yeah, the blood bank are always telling yeah. us that a few minutes heads up so that they can clear their other workload and get ready. Because if you're at night and there's one person in the lab covering hematology and blood transfusion, a major blood transfusion protocol uses up an enormous amount of work and time to get that ready. So, you know, they need that heads up as much as we do. Yeah. Um, one of the things uh, that, you know, I always find interesting slash amusing in, you know, textbooks and ATLS and generally trauma uh, education is IV access and how it's always just left as a single line of, I uh, just pop two large bore access in. Um, and take the bloods and it's, it's that's always just the easiest thing in the world and sometimes or usually that job is assigned to like the the least senior member of the team um, but my experience with sick traumas is that's often the hardest job and it's it's actually one of the most important because you can't manage someone's airway until you have IV access you can't intubate them or do an RSI you can't manage someone's pain you can't start a transfusion you're really limited until you've got a secure IV access so um, sometimes it will be easy and one of your excellent nurses will pop one in and that's great. Um, but many times they won't. And 
usually if they don't have access on arrival, it's because they've got difficult access and the paramedics were not able to get it. Um, so what, what kind of uh, backup plans would you have if you, you weren't immediately able to get good access? Yeah, and I suppose, again, it depends on who's there. So I would probably try and see if I could get one in with ultrasound. So use that to get a peripherally guided IV cannula. Um, that can sometimes be a little bit time consuming and it can be difficult to position a patient's arm to actually get access to those veins that you're going looking for with the ultrasound. And I think sometimes there can be a danger of getting too task focused there. Um, so it's always important to keep in mind that if you have intraosseous access as a backup there, if it's taking you a long time to get IV access or if you need to give medication or blood immediately to get an IO in, start that and then give yourself a little bit of time to get that, as you say, good IV access. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, IO it would be my first line in someone who's obtunded because if they're obtunded, they're very, very sick and they're either obtunded because they're very hypertensive or they have a significant brain injury. So uh, either way, they, they need access immediately. And the quickest way to get IV access in an obtunded patient is probably an IO. If they're not obtunded and they're more alert, then you have more time. And, uh, you know, it's quite painful putting an IO. So those are the 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 more kind of GCS 13, 14, 15 patients are the ones that I would put the ultrasound guided line in. But there's pros and cons to both. You know, IO, it's pretty easy to put it in the tibia, but if you have significant pelvic or abdominal trauma, then giving blood below the level of potential vascular injury, venous injury, you might just extravate all that blood into the pelvis and um, not get any of it into the, the brain and heart. So Ideally, you want the blood to be going in above the level of injury. So humoral IO is a good option. And then, yeah, uh, cannulas in the arms. Um, and you might well have to use ultrasound. Um, and then central access if you're really struggling. But the you know central lines we have in most EDs aren't particularly large bore. So it's actually not a very good way of giving fluids in a hurry. But it might be necessary if, if the patient's really difficult. And for some reason, you can't get IO. You mentioned kind of stepping out of your leadership role and, and getting a line. And I like that because that's kind of this dynamic team leadership that you're absolutely going to have to do in many Irish resuscitations because we don't have the resources to do that textbook, stand at the end of the bed and not get involved. You know, for context, uh, in Plymouth Major Trauma Center, where I worked at the start of my career, their team for a code red hospital trauma call. So this is a significant mechanism plus um, evidence of shock, so hypotension or significant tachycardia, evidence of bleeding. They would have a trauma team leader who's an ED consultant. They would have two primary survey doctors. The airway would be an anaesthetist and the um, breathing circulation disability would be either an ED reg or a general surgeon or a trauma and orthopedic surgeon. They would have a dedicated trauma line inserter, so they would often go subclavian with a RIC line and a short, fat um, central line. They would have a dedicated ultrasound doctor. They would have a rapid infuser uh, nurse one, rapid infuser nurse two, uh, an ED doc um, for procedures, and then an airway nurse, a circulation nurse, a drugs nurse, a scribe, and a porter. <laughs> so that's a team of 10 or 11. And you know we don't have that luxury most of the time in most Irish hospitals. Um, although it can happen if you have it in the middle of the day at a bigger hospital that you get the, those kind of numbers. Absolutely. And 
once you have those kind of numbers, then absolutely someone who can be completely hands off and directing traffic, you know, that pure team leader role is really helpful. But you need enough people to be actually affecting the assessment and the procedures and getting the blood ready and and those things and as you say you may not have that luxury depending on how many people you have so uh, talking about not getting tunnel visions also not getting distracted so um one of the things this patient you know they came in a lot of pain and there was this open fracture of the ankle so um you know well done for not um letting that sidetrack you yeah and that's one of these classic pitfalls isn't it is that there's a dramatic limb injury or loss of limb and people forget about their primary survey or they assume it's been completed by someone else and you're potentially missing a life-threatening injury because there's a more obvious injury straight in front of you and you're not doing those essentials that will save the patient's life. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and talking of the saving the patient's life, how are we going to identify ongoing bleeding? So, we, you know, external bleeding is easy enough, um, although, you know, you've already mentioned some of the pitfalls. So just do check for slower uh, bleeding, pooling on the patient's trolley um, under their head and from back wounds you haven't seen yet. But um, in terms of inter- internal bleeding, like, um, have you heard of uh, the Hateful Eight, apart from the film, excellent Western? Uh Yes, I have. Um, I believe Cliff Reed was the man who originally um, voiced that or put it into that phrase. Um, so what you're looking for is a patient who's pale, clammy, they're showing air hunger, uh, venous collapse, if there's hypotension, so low volume or absent peripheral pulses, uh, low end tidal COT, uh, altered heart rate, either too high or too low and a patient who's confused or drowsy and um, stuff so the hateful age so if your yeah. patient has all of those they're in serious trouble yeah certainly all of them is a peri-arrest situation if they have any one of them it's concerning um you know altered mentition is usually the first one you see um because you know if someone is coming in talking to you and responding normally you straight away know that they have an adequate perfusion to perfuse their brain, which is really reassuring. If someone comes in tunded or um, really, um, uh, you know, conf- really reduced GCS, then that that's very concerning, either from a head injury point of view, but also from a circulation point of view. And then your kind of general appearance, pale, clammy. The air hunger, one, air hunger one's really interesting, actually. The mechanism is it's that classic, you know, gasping, which people describe or nurses often describe in someone who's dying. And what it actually is, is trying to generate massive intrathoracic negative pressures with huge gulps of air. And that actually kind of sucks, um, increases venous return by sucking blood up the IVC because of that negative intrathoracic pressure. So it's the body trying to augment their their circulation. Um, and it's a really ominous sign um, and, and kind of indicates um, cardiovascular collapse. And then, as you say, like bradycardia is, a, again, peri-arrest um, rhythm. Something that you might see earlier, and it's pretty simple to do as well, is someone's shock index. That's just their systolic blood pressure divided by their heart rate. Yeah, so the shock index is, if it's over one, then that's bad. So if someone's um, heart rate is higher than their systolic blood pressure, then that's that's a bad sign. And 
the nice thing with that is it's slightly relative rather rather than just having a fixed blood pressure in your head of what is normal. Um, you, you know, you might have someone who um, has a naturally really high blood pressure and it's, it's, their systolic's down to 110, but their heart rate's 130. And um, that's, that's an abnormal situation. Something else that you'll have access to hopefully quite quickly in these resuscitations is a venous blood gas as well. Um, so first things that will probably go off in your shocked patient is that they'll become acidotic. So your pH will start to drop. Uh, your base success will start to go negative. Your lactate will start to rise. Your hemoglobin is generally not that useful in the acute setting because hemoglobin is a concentration and what you're bleeding is whole blood. So the concentration is not going to change immediately. Uh, it's compensatory mechanisms to shock that cause your hemoglobin to drop and your blood to dilute. So uh, definitely don't be falsely reassured by a normal hemoglobin in a shocked patient. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, you want to find out if they're bleeding in the abdomen. So, you know, my practice is to do a diagnostic peritoneal lavage on all of these patients and just stick a big needle blindly into the abdomen and see what comes out. What could uh, possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong? I'm, I'm glad we've moved on from that practice. Um, that does seem like one of the, the stranger ones, but, but I guess they were doing the best with what they had. But we have a little bit, little better technology now. Um, so, you know, POCUS is a fantastic tool and eFast and especially the extended, the e part of the FAST. And we'll probably discuss it more in the echo chamber segment of this. But, you know, if you see a large amount of free fluid in the abdomen in the context of a shock patient, then especially in uh, a setting where you might not have immediate access to CT and theater and things, you know, that, that would change how I manage this patient. It would change who I was involving and where the kind of projected trajectory was. Um, and I would be doing things like making sure those senior surgeons coming and theaters activated and making sure that, uh, you know, mass and transfusion protocols are getting ready and things. And similarly, you know, the thoracic components, I think is the most useful because the, the abdominal components, you know, you are going to do a CT, which is a much more sensitive and specific test. So um, it, it, you know, it's a good argument to be made that it doesn't really impact that, but um, there's a long delay or at least some delay in getting patients into a CT scanner and looking for pneumothoraces in that time is really important, especially if you're going to intubate the patient because you don't want to miss a pneumothorax and have them tension on the way to CT or whilst being tubed. And, you know, we can do portable chest x-rays, but they're pretty slow. I wouldn't rely on chest x-ray to rule out a pneumothorax and I wouldn't rely on clinical exam either. Certainly, I was working in South Africa this year and uh, there's a lot of penetrating chest trauma and the sub-xiphoid view looking for a pericardial effusion um, was just an absolute essential part of their initial assessment. And it was a hugely important part because um, if there's no pericardial effusion um, and they have you know, isolated thoracic stab wounds or even gunshot wounds, you, you can just not quite relax a lot, but you can definitely be much more reassured that they're not going to deteriorate you, you can put your drains in and you know give them uh, we were doing auto transfusions so if they bleed a lot into the chest drain you just turn the drain upside down and give it back to them um which is amazing so you, you were really um it guided how worried you were if they had a pericardial effusion then it's a whole different story and then you're thinking about um you know emergency theater you're thinking about thoracotomies and that's the 
case in Ireland and the thoracotomies I've been involved with, the um, you know the the deciding or the initiating um, step was the combination of a loss of output and a, a positive um, EFAR showing of pericardial effusion, and that was the kind of trigger to say, yeah, it's definitely um, that's the next step. It's definitely indicated. So. Um, super useful tool, but plenty of limitations, which we'll talk about in the in the echo chamber. So moving on, then um, you know you're concerned this patient's bleeding. We haven't identified from where, but what would be some of your like priority priorities in the bleeding patient? First priority should always be to turn off the tap. So you want to stop hemorrhage with whatever tools you have at your disposal now. Depending on where the bleeding is coming from, you may not be able to stop it in resus. But, you know, getting long bone fractures splinted and in a roughly anatomical alignment, pressures or tourniquets for arterial bleeds, um, getting those interventions, you know, if they can't be done in resus, like getting interventional radiology organized or getting the people needed to get the patient to theater ready so that they can you know, stop the bleedings from the spleen or wherever it might be coming from. Um, so I think always the first thing we should be thinking of is how do we stop the bleeding? You know, we can transfuse, but until you stop that bleeding, um, the, the transfusion's only buying you time. It's not getting the patient better. 100%. I think that's that if, if that's the only thing people take away from this conversation, then that's a great learning point. It, we must be better at turning off the tap. And that was something that was just so obvious in Cape Town with a high volume of bleeding patients and trauma. We, we gave hardly any transfusions. The system was so efficient at taking the patients to theater if they were unstable. Um, there just wasn't an emphasis on giving blood because we didn't have them in recess for long enough to give blood. Um, they were either They either responded to initial measures and were stable, in which case they didn't need any blood, or they were really unstable, in which case they went straight to theater. But the difference is they had general surgeons or trauma surgeons who were super experienced at um, thoracic and abdominal trauma surgery. So they were well able to take patients to theater without CT. They were well able to open the chest and the abdomen and the pericardium, whatever they needed to do. Um, here, the surgeons in most centers are less confident with trauma, understandably so, because it's much rarer. Um, so there tends to be this kind of stasis in resus um, where there isn't that momentum to theater. Um, they want the patient stabilized first, all this kind of stuff, when actually you can't stabilize a patient who's bleeding to death with with just giving them loads of blood. They, they need to have the bleeding stop. So if we if we think that as team leaders and we really push for that and we really think ahead of time, who can stop this bleeding? Do I need to get an IR? Do I need to get a surgeon? Do I need to get an obstetrician? Whatever it is. Yeah. And then exactly, I suppose, once we've got those things in motion, what we've got in our control is making sure the patient's got good IV access, getting blood to the lab, making sure the lab is informed early we want to get our major transfusion protocols activated so that's going to be your red cells it's going to be plasma and platelets to stop the patient from becoming co coagulopathic one thing as well we need to think about especially in this kind of silver trauma and um, aging population is whether we can or need to reverse anticoagulation so 
as well as our TXA we're going to give pretty routinely. As you mentioned, don't forget the infusion, not just the first gram. Um, and then are they on any blood thinners that we can specifically reverse? And usually a discussion with the hematology consultants at this point, if you're having to reverse agents would be necessary. And then you're just trying to optimize their clotting at all times. So keeping them warm and keeping their calcium within normal range. And if you're giving a massive transfusion, it often drops. So giving the calcium gluconates 10 mils um, and then just avoiding unnecessary handling of them. Um, and all of that is just designed to help the body um, stop the clotting. And, you know, the body has an incredible uh, and system that's evolved over thousands of years um, to stop bleeding. And, you know, it's amazing seeing it working. And I've seen some penetrating chest injuries with pericardial fusions and unstable patients. And thankfully, they, their body clotted the hole and they remained stable. Um, and didn't progress to cardiac arrest and we didn't actually have to do anything. Um, the pericardial effusion just sat there and the hole was closed. And, you know, in that instance, it might have been the tranexamic acid that saved the patient's life and just helped that clot form. Um, and, it, and it's not loads of heroics we're doing. It's just helping the body do what the body does best. Yeah, and that point on the tranexamic acid, you know, first clot is best clot. So whatever stops the bleeding initially by the body, that's most likely the thing that's going to kept it stop. Uh, so not to, as you say, minimize the handling and not to lose that first clot. Super. And then the last thing I want to talk about or just pick up on, because, you know, all of that, the patient wasn't bleeding to death. Um, it's important to address those concerns first, but this patient's most serious pathology wasn't life-threatening in the initial phase, so that was that was good, and it meant their their ED journey was relatively unremarkable. Um, but their bowel injury turned out to be the cause of their prolonged hospital stay and ICU admission and multiple surgeries. So um, it's reasonably uh, well. I don't think I've seen it that much, but actually in the literature, it's quite common. So there's probably a gap between what we're looking out for in trauma and, and what the patients are developing down the line. So. Can you talk a little bit about bowel injury and trauma? Yeah, so after the liver and the spleen, the bowel is the most commonly injured organ in the abdomen, um, found in about 5 to 17% of laparotomies done for blunt trauma in one study. Um, it is thought but not proven that the instance is increasing, uh, thought to be due to high-speed collisions and effective seatbelts as well important to note that clinical exam is quite poor at picking this up so only about 16 percent sensitivity for clinical exam for bowel injury so it's really not something that you're going to pick up uh, just by palpating the abdomen and um, one thing that is useful to look for in this patient did have is the seatbelt sign uh, so there was one study which showed that 64% of patients with a seatbelt sign had an abdominal in intra-abdominal injury, and uh, about 36% of those required operative intervention. Um, and of those late seatbelt sign, only 8% had a significant intra-abdominal injury, which is a significant discriminating factor. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> so no, just knowing that... Um will will change my gestalt for the rest of my career that if I see someone with a seatbelt sign, you have an incredibly high pretest probability of having an abdominal injury and needing surgery. So 
that's a super useful, as you say, discriminating clinical sign. And, you know, these injuries can be quite significant. Are there any radiological, um, you know, are they all going to be picked up on CT? How's fast? Yeah, and again, this is part of the problem is that they may not be picked up with imaging. So there was a study at the Alfred of about 278 patients with um, blunt bowel and mesenteric injury. Um, about half of them had free fluid on fast. So flip of a coin, whether your point care ultrasound is going to pick that up. And um, interestingly, CT was not as effective as you would hope it would be. So about 22% of patients had free gas. 31% had bowel thickening uh, and mesenteric expanding, and 38% um, free fluid with no solid organ injury. So, you know, others study concluded that contrast and CT only had an overall sensitivity of about 10 to 15% for bowel injury. So that's not great numbers if you're just looking at CT in isolation. That's terrible numbers. And again, super important for us to know because we might be armed with this information and the surgeon on call might not be. So it's definitely important to advocate for your patients. And just because a CT scan done half an hour after the patient arrived um, is reassuring doesn't mean the patient is out of the woods um, and you know they definitely should be admitted for observation um, and I'd say if you have any kind of doubts about a patient who's had a significant mechanism then um, admitting them for observation and serial vital signs and exams is, is the safe thing to do Interestingly, actually, in Cape Town, the CT wasn't used nearly as much, and the surgeons were huge fans of abdominal obs. So, anyone with penetrating or blunt trauma who was stable with relatively normal vital signs and didn't get a CT and didn't necessarily go to theatre, they were just admitted to the surgical ward for abdominal observations and serial exam. And if they developed um, evidence of uh, instability or peritonitis, then they had their laparotomy but many many recovered without and that's published that's quite good literature published on that now that that's a reasonable way to manage these patients in that particular setting obviously in Ireland we, we're going to CT most all of these but still that importance of serial observation is often missed absolutely and why that's important is that again that study from the Alfred show that patients who had an exploratory laparotomy and their resection or repair um, less than 48 hours after injury had significantly lower morbidity than those who had that procedure after 48 hours. So picking up those injuries early and, you know, flagging how important they are and getting them treated um, has been proven to reduce morbidity with these injuries. Wow. Well, that's super. Thanks so much for that case. It was fantastic. And we're looking forward now to having a adult in the room give us some feedback as to how we did cheers Owen. our adult in the room this month is dr sean crowan a consultant in emergency medicine who's currently doing a fellowship in intensive care medicine and sitting the notoriously difficult joint faculty of intensive care medicine exams in order to receive dual certification. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Sean.
Okay, so um, thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, really interesting case to listen to um, and very, very well managed, in my opinion. I described this case as being a very typical, atypical presentation in terms of hollow viscous injury. But even that in and of itself is a difficult enough case to manage before you throw on the agitation of the patient, the distracting injury from the trimal fracture, and then, of course, the specter of um, adult congenital heart disease and needing to manage uh, shunt fractions in your resuscitation, just hovering in the background from the transposition of the great arteries as well. So yeah, really, really interesting case. With regards to the um, the clinical aspects of the case, I think I think the resuscitation was excellent. Um, I don't think there's any major uh, management decisions that I would have made differently. I think there was a very, very good approach to the kind of initial approach, the primary survey, description of a fast scan. Um, what I particularly liked was the recognition of both the microvascular and the macrovascular signs of kind of hemostatics and hemodynamics. So there's the recognition of the microvascular circu- or sorry, microvascular circulation um, in terms of the blood pressure, but then also assessing um, not just pressure, but also perfusion through the hateful eight and looking to see if the patient is well perfused, if they're clammy or shut down or not. Um, I also particularly like that Owen spent um, a lot of time paying attention to looking for occult sources of bleeding. I would also just add a slight caveat to that, that it's not just occult bleeding that you need to be paying attention to, but occult causes of shock as well. So in the trauma patient, obviously obstructive shocks, attention, pneumo, cardiac tamponade is the absolute first priority that needs to be excluded. Thereafter, we're playing find the bleeding and ruling out hemorrhagic shock. Um, once hemorrhagic shock has been excluded, you can then move on and assess for spinal or neurogenic shock. And then if you've got a transient or a non-responder to the appropriate measures for hemorrhagic shock, at that point then, I think it's uh, worthwhile just sparing a moment to think about the kind of more occult causes of shock, which generally tend to fall more into the medical category. So for example, is this uh, an evolving cardiogenic shock, either due to massive transfusion-associated cardioplegia, a poor heart to begin with, a beta-blocked heart, or say something more sinister, such as an MI that caused the RTC to begin with. Also worthwhile sparing a thought for anaphylaxis in these patients and for the endocrine causes of shock, particularly hypoglycemia or an Addisonian patient that's now in an Addisonian crisis secondary to their stress response. They're all cases of um, missed medical causes of shock that I've seen in trauma patients. One point that um, I would emphasize as well in terms of the clinical assessment of this patient. So as I said, we had a heart rate of 130 and mean arterial pressure of 70, wide pulse pressure of 60 and a shock index of 1.2. So there's a few kind of important details to pay attention to there. The first one that I'd emphasize is spend some time going through the pre-hospital vital signs. Paramedics do a great job at stabilizing and resuscitating patients, uh, oftentimes too good. And there has been good evidence shown that basically when you look at trauma patients, the pre-hospital shock index, so the shock index before we start administering any kind of treatment, is actually the most significant predictor for the need for massive blood transfusion or for ICU admission. And so that's something now that I've always started to pay attention to. And while traditional ATLS taught you the classifications of hemorrhagic shock using vital signs, I think that has finally started to go out with the latest edition There has been good evidence showing that other measures actually are uh, more sensitive and specific for the assessment for need for operative intervention or massive transfusion in the uh, patient with blunt abdominal trauma. In particular, um, I think it's worthwhile paying attention to uh, any episodes of bradycardia. 
and um, they're associated basically with excessive uh, vagal stimulation from peritoneal stimulation which is usually from intraperitoneal blood um, any episodes of transient hypotension even if it's just a single recording um, again there's been a good retrospective uh, data series showing that uh, even a single bp recording of less than a, with a systolic of less than 105 those patients were about 40 percent more likely to go for operative intervention or to require uh, endovascular angiograms and uh, ior procedures Column has already mentioned kind of the importance of the shock index, um, which, as I said, has been shown to kind of outperform other measures and other assessments of vital signs, uh, particularly in the trauma patients. Um, one other measure that I would say is coming along that may perhaps be even more sensitive than the shock index um, that's often missed. It's something that you'll notice. You'll know that the blood pressure looks funny but you might just have a little bit of time saying why, uh, is the pulse pressure. So the pulse pressure is your systolic minus your diastolic pressure, and it should normally be somewhere in the region of 30 to 40. Um, there has been good evidence showing that a, a narrow pulse pressure, which is defined as a pulse pressure of less than 30, um, is a kind of very early and accurate sign of significant hemorrhage and impending circulatory collapse. Again, there has been good data showing that pre-hospital narrow pulse pressure um, is a very good indicator of severity of trauma, need for resuscitative thoracotomy, um, and need for inter uh, emergent interventions as well. While a wide pulse pressure can be associated with uh, traumatic aortic dissections or uh, tears, um, which would be particularly concerning in someone with a history of TGA. So I try to pay attention to um, all of these kind of um, derived vital signs, I suppose is the easiest way to call them, um, when I'm uh, running my trauma resuscitations. Um, and I also think it's important that many of the uh, internal teams would not be aware of the literature surrounding the importance of these kind of derived measures or of the pre-hospital vital signs. So I think it behooves us to uh, highlight this information to the primary teams and to kind of emphasize the importance of the information and the literature surrounding the information um, just to try and make sure the teams are aware that the patients have these markers of badness associated with them as well. So just moving on to the uh, diagnostic investigations then, I believe uh, blood gas was the first test that we performed in this patient. Um, and while the basic test was discussed, I would just like to emphasize the importance of this measurement. Um, there has been good evidence now shown that basic test is a reliable early indicator of injury severity and that it does outperform the traditional ATLS assessment rubrics. Um, so as such, I do pay a lot of attention to this variable in all of my trauma resuscitations and use it as a marker of shock severity um, and overall injury severity as well. So one other aspect that I think is important to pay attention to on uh, venous gas is the ionized calcium. There has been good literature shown that low calcium levels are associated with more severe bleeding and more severe um, shock states and uh, an accelerated development of the acute coagulopathy of trauma. So reversing um, hypocalcemia has become uh, increasingly recognized as an important aspect of good trauma care. Um, to the extent that the joint military um, guidelines for the US um, kind of for their four branches of service um, have now kind of decided that any trauma patients presenting to forward operating bases will immediately get a gram of CACL given empirically, um, followed by one gram for every four to six units of red cells that they get after that. Um, and that's because the citrate in the red blood cells that you're giving will chelate the calcium. Um, so you end up with a double whammy there of losing the calcium from the body, um, but also getting possible citrate toxicity as well. 
Other variables that I think are important to pay attention to are the potassium as well. So we know that if you give very good effective massive transfusion, we're talking about say 10 units of blood in the first hour of resuscitation, there's an increasingly recognized uh, clinical syndrome called post-massive transfusion cardioplegia syndrome. So if you've ever been up in cardiothoracic theater, um, when they're stopping the heart, they inject um, cardioplegia. Now, essentially what cardioplegia is, is a very cold, high potassium solution with some calcium channel blockers added into it. And if you consider a trauma patient, they're bleeding, so they're usually hypothermic. They're, as we mentioned, hypocalcemic from the citrate in the blood that's being given and also just from the actual acute coagulopathy of trauma itself. Um, and many people don't recognize this, but red blood cells, um, or red cell conjugate that we give in trauma patients, it is not um, a resuscitative fluid. And it is not, a, what do I mean by that? I mean, it is not a physiologically balanced fluid. So if you took a bag of red cells um, and took out a sample and ran it through um, a blood gas analyzer, you'd see it has a pH of about six and a half. It would have a potassium somewhere between 20 to 40, It'd have a sodium of about 110, 115, and it would have absolutely no calcium in it. So you're essentially, every bag of red blood cells you're giving, you're giving the patient a bolus of 40 millimoles of potassium. Um, so you can imagine if you've given 10 bags, that's uh, 400 millimoles of potassium, you've essentially given the patient a cardioplegic solution. So cardiogenic shock secondary to hyperkalemia, hypocalcemia, and hypothermia from massive transfusion has been an increasingly recognized um, issue that complicates the post-resuscitative phase of trauma patients and is something that we try and keep an eye out for. Um, so I would just, in terms of an emergency medicine aspect, I would pay particular attention to this. If the patient is starting off hyperkalemic, that would be uh, that would be something that would make me empirically tr treat them with um, with some insulin. Moving on then to the um, kind of management interventions in this case, um, I think this patient was very well resuscitated and I wouldn't have any major differences in how I would proceed with this case. I absolutely agree that um, control of the extremities trauma is a priority here. And as we'd said previously, this patient is agitated. Um, just as a little bonus, basically, if she has a history of transposition of the great arteries, this patient's pulmonary blood flow would be almost entirely reliant on the difference between the pulmonary pressures and the systemic pressures in her body. So she would have, you'd have to pay attention to what's called a shunt fraction and you'd want to try avoid anything that causes massive arterial vasodilation, which would mean that agents like morphine really wouldn't be a good call in this situation. So I absolutely agree with the decision to give kind of judicious boluses of uh, fentanyl. Um, and then kind of if that needed supplementation, I would give very cautious boluses of um, ketamine titrated to effect as opposed to giving say an agent that could cause massive arterial vasodilation like propofol um, when we, if we had to do procedural sedation to um, manipulate this leg. I agree with the um, importance of giving TXA in a patient like this. Um, I think with the publication of the matters and the patch study we can kind of definitively put um, some of the controversy surrounding CRASH-2 to bed and say that, yes, it is applicable even in a well-developed um, trauma system. There has been a trend towards giving boluses of TXA. Um, so I know that the TCC or the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Guidelines, again, another US military guideline body, have transitioned away from giving the traditional one gram bolus followed by the one gram infusion um, to just giving a single two gram bolus. Now, their rationale behind this was when they analyzed some of their data, they found that less than 5% of the patients actually received the infusion. 
So they felt that just giving the drug up front as a bolus was a better thing. This has been assessed in um, kind of safety studies, which have shown an increased risk of VTE with this dosing profile, however. And if you look at the actual pharmacology of it, basically, if you want to keep your TXA level above 20 micrograms per mil, which is kind of the minimum level that's required to achieve a, a kind of, you know, clinically significant level of inhibition of fibrinolysis, the one gram bolus um, or basically any bolus will really only give you significant inhibition for somewhere between 90 min- 90 to 120 minutes, which is the rationale behind the infusion. So I still put my patients up on a TXA infusion um, and I will prioritize getting additional IV access. So this is going to need a dedicated line um, or a dedicated lumen that's going to be running in for eight hours. And so I prioritize getting additional access if that's needed. There was some discussion of the um, kind of need for massive transfusion. And while fortunately it sounded like this patient didn't actually require massive transfusion, I find that this can be one of the sticky points of a good trauma resuscitation. And it's essential to get this right. Personally speaking, I try to dedicate two nurses or a nurse and a doctor to be just my transfusion team and their job is setting up and priming the Belmont um, or whatever rapid infuser you're using and ensuring that all the blood gets cross-matched and hung appropriately. Some mild tips that I will suggest if for kind of management of um, a massive transfusion is get to know your rapid transfuser. So for most places, that's the Belmont pump. Know how it works, know how to take how to set it up. Um, just to give some examples from the Belmont um, that I feel are really important, there is a kind of a central reservoir, okay, the, the Belmont bucket that some hospitals use. This thing has got a huge capacity. It's got a three liter volume and it allows the Belmont to give blood at a much, much faster rate. So you can go up to, I think it is 750 mils a minute with the bucket uh, kind of thing. But it also needs to be primed and it can be, there can be a huge amount of blood that ends up then in the central reservoir, but not in the patient. So if you're going to be using that, it's something you need to pay attention to. If you don't have a large line, the Belmont also has a Y-piece adapter that you can that comes with the, um, with the infusion line. Uh, it is an optional extra. The hospital does have to buy it, but it usually most hospitals in Ireland do it. And that allows you to split the infusion over two or multiple lines. So if you can't get a good working, say, 14 gauge, you can split it between two 18 gauges. um, And that works quite well. Um, And then the final little bit of uh, tip that I would give you is the Belmont itself has uh, the actual line has a small little medication infusing port on it on the side of it that you can use to give infusions while you're running your massive transfusion. And so it stops you from having to, say, pause the transfusion to give some medications or to give a bolus of something and then restart it. And so it's just a nice kind of slick little thing that if you can be aware of that helps. Moving on then to the kind of more meat and bones of the massive transfusion itself. Um, Again, wherever possible, we want to do a hemostatic resuscitation. That usually means prioritizing kind of a map of about 50 or so and something uh, kind of a concept known as permissive hypotension. It has become significantly less controversial in recent years. And I think our inpatient colleagues are finally starting to get on board with this. There are some very understandable reservations. Um, any concern of a traumatic brain injury it would be the priority there, where there's very clear evidence that even transient episodes of hypotension um, double your mortality with a TBI. Um, so unless you have definitively excluded um, TBI, 
I don't really like risk of hypertension isn't acceptable in that scenario. Otherwise, I think the recent paper by Tran et al. in 2018 is kind of the most recent systematic review on permissive hypertension. It showed a clear benefit. And so I think that this stuff is kind of becoming more accepted and more widespread. So when we say that we want to do a hemostatic resuscitation um, with our massive transfusion, what we mean by that is that we want to achieve um, a ratio as close to one to one to one between blood, plasma and, and platelets as possible. This is because unfortunately we don't have whole blood available um, and it's unlikely to be available um, anytime soon in the Irish trauma environment. <clears throat> um, as I'd mentioned earlier on, Red cell conjugate is a very aphysiologic solution. It's got a pH of 6.5, potassium of 40, um, it's got no calcium in it. Um, so it's transfusion is not without its risks. Um, and that's why increasingly there's been this trend towards starting at white. Um, and what that is, is that there's been good evidence that's shown, particularly for platelets, that if you prioritize giving platelets or plasma above giving red cells, you're more likely to achieve your one-to-one-to-one ratio um, and there has been some, granted, retrospective observational data um, that it is associated with improved mortality. And on a similar theme, um, we had the publication of the RESTRICT trial there recently, which has shown that a more restrictive transfusion target for your hemoglobin is not associated with worse outcomes. So in this trial, they kind of, they gave uh, patients a target hemoglobin of 7 versus a target hemoglobin of 10 to 12, um, and there was absolutely no difference in outcomes. Other things that you might see in terms of kind of fancier blood products, there was a trend towards loading patients with large volumes of fibrinogen at the start of a resuscitation. And the Cryostat 2 trial has been recently published, which has kind of put that to bed. It's not associated with any better outcomes. And then there's a big trend in Europe towards using um, prothrombin complex conjugate or octoplex as a kind of part of a resuscitation or transfusion to give a patient a big bolus of factors to encourage clotting. Again, there was the publication of the pro-coag trial uh, recently that kind of where they gave 25 units per kg of PCC to all trauma patients, um, and that was associated with increased harm. So that's kind of put that to bed as well. One other thing that I do think is very beneficial for running a massive transfusion, particularly, as we said, if you're getting into those transfusions where you're given 10 plus units, is visoelastic um, hemostatic assays, so TEG or ROTEM. Um, now, to my knowledge, there is no ED that has one of these systems in the actual department itself, but there are multiple hospitals that have very easy access to them. Um, and I know certainly Vincent's has one. Um, and when I was in Cork, the cardiac perfusionists were driven mad by me constantly running, uh, running up to run TEGs. The evidence for these things is, isn't great since the publication of the Itactic trial, but that trial had a lot of issues. And if you look at the kind of military combat data, there's a very clear uh, mortality benefit. Um, and similarly, if you look at the most recent Cochrane review on this, again, a clear evidence of a mortality be uh, benefit. Now, most of that is coming from cardiac surgery trials. But as we just spoke about, you know, there's a lot of stuff that's going on in cardiac surgery in terms of cardioplegia, hypothermia, inducing coagulopathy that's happening in a trauma resuscitation. And I don't feel that there's a substantial difference between these two populations. So it is something that I kind of use a lot. Um, and I think that you can get some good benefit by spending some time just sitting down, understanding how to read a tag um, and knowing how to guide your resuscitation from that point of view. One other thing that I would like to emphasize is that vasopressors really should almost never being given in the setting of a hemorrhagic shock. Now for spinal shock, it's slightly different. But 
one thing I do think it's important for us as emergency physicians is to just be aware that there is good prospective observational evidence that vasopressors in hemorrhagic shock are associated with increased mortality. Um, and I think there's been multiple times where I've had to remind um, anesthesia colleagues of that when they're starting pressors in the hypotensive patient, that they need blood and not pressors. Yes, there is a role for pressors in the catecholamine uh, kind of deficiency, deficient patients, or say if we've af- for after inducing a vasopressin deficiency in massive transfusion. But that's a very select, very limited role, and I would say should be a consultant, certainly guided, if not consultant-initiated decision. And I think a very good rule of thumb for most people to have is that hemorrhagic shock patients do not get any pressors. So Colm kind of an own had a good discussion there about um, IV access. And just like massive transfusion, this can be a sticking point in a resuscitation. Uh, I think the ability to establish good definitive IV access early on really can transform a very hairy resuscitation into a more manageable one. So I think it's it's a critical skill to have and it's a critical skill to be very proficient at because it allows you to kind of take those, you know, heart rate of 150 where your sweaty patient is sweaty uh, moments and kind of calm them down or neutralize them quite rapidly. So I do think it's 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 a very important skill set. Generally speaking, the idea that I tend to preach with IV access is you need to walk before you can run. So you need to get something and then we can worry about getting large bore or proper massive transfusion lines into the patient, but any kind of port in a storm to begin with. And that that initial access you're going to use to give your initial drugs to start maybe your first one or two units and then you will upgrade to a more definitive line once you have time. And the other thing people are kind of, (laughs) I think anyone who's worked with me is sick to the teeth of hearing me say this but it's always one two io so basically i I like to run my arrests in cycles almost like or my traumas in cycles almost like um, a cycle of cpr where i'll check back in on any tasks that are in process every two minutes or so Um, and if i've gotten back to you after two minutes and there's no iv access um, sometimes even faster i will transition to io you can put in an io in a patient even if they're awake that is kind of something that a lot of people are hesitant about there is good evidence of this. Um, in fact, if you go online, you'll see um, US soldiers putting in fast IOs, which are sternal IOs, into their mates when they're awake and without significant pain. But generally speaking, it pays to be kind. So if you're going to be doing this, make sure that you anesthetize the skin beforehand. Um, and then the key is before you start giving any kind of pressurized solutions or large volume of fluids through the IO, you need to put in about two mils of 2% lidocaine and let it dwell for about 30 seconds or so. Um, but as long as you follow those steps, IOs and awake patients are not a very painful procedure. And they can really help you uh, temporize um, a dangerous situation. The other point that I'd like to make about IOs is just be aware of the differences between your access sites. So tibial is probably the easiest to get, but humeral will give you faster flows. Generally speaking, about double the flow of a tibial. The only caveat to the humeral access site is that it is the most variable in terms of the flow rate. This probably relates to the difficulty of insertion, but some humeral lines are fantastic and will give, you know, 500 mils a minute, no problem. Other ones are absolutely terrible and will only give, you know, 30, 40 mils a minute. So you need to be paying attention to the flow rates through your humeral IO and be sure if you're going to use that as your kind of transient line while you establish definitive access, you need to check that it is giving good flow rates. Establishing more definitive access then is a, um, a tricky business. 
uh, Rick Glides are fantastic if you have them available. I know St. Vincent's has them, but as far as I'm aware, no other hospital in Ireland has them. The problem with RICs is that realistically speaking, they're only suitable for your young adult male patients. I find that if you try and upsize anything else, they just tend to blow because of the flow rates. They're just so high. Moving on from the RICs, um, one uh, instrument that I've kind of become increasingly familiar with from my time in ICU that I feel is very beneficial that not many in ED are aware of are the sheet introducer devices. So if you've ever seen the single lumen central lines that have a kind of infusion port coming off them at a right angle these are sheet introducer devices um, and they're absolutely ideal for fluid resuscitation they're small um, they're wide so they're great for flow and they're only single lumen so they're actually very quick to put in they're certainly a lot faster to put in than a vast cath so if you have these available the most kind of commercially available one for used for traumatic resuscitation is the mac line but you can say pop down to IOR um, or down to cardiology and grab a couple of sheath introducers and have them sit in your resus bay. Um, you will need a little bit of training to learn how to put them in because you can cause damage and can lacerate the ORA if you don't know what you're doing. Um, but they're an absolutely excellent line. In terms of other things that are more rapidly available um, without specialist training, I'm a huge advocate for external jugular lines or what's called the rapid IJ line. Um, so the rapid IJ line is essentially a 16-gauge cannula that's put into the IJ. It can be done blind, can be done under ultrasound guidance. Um, you just need to kind of go take a middle ground between full asepsis that you'd use for a central line and uh, kind of just the quick rub of chlorhexidine that you do for a peripheral line. Um, so a decent kind of bath with some 2% chlorhexidine. Give it a minute to work and then access the line um, and that'll give you a kind of 14 or a 16 gauge in a central vein that you can start use to initiate your, your rapid transfusion with. Moving on then to kind of more definitive lines, I do think that the best line for trauma, I would agree with Column here, is a um, subclavian line. I've personally moved to doing all of my subclavians with ultrasound. Um, I've given someone a chylothorax and that was enough for me. And they are a tricky line. It does take some time to get familiar with, but once you can get them down, they are they're a very neat line. They're quite quick to put in um, and they are quite, quite good. If you're familiar with your subclavians and you're looking to kind of progress your skills further, one technique that I would suggest looking up is the supraclavicular subclavian line. So this is a technique where you go essentially for the confluence of the internal jugular and the brachiocephalic and the subclavian veins, um, and you're kind of introducing a needle right into that little triangle there. It's a blind; It can be done blind, and most people do it blind. You can use ultrasound if you want, but there's just very little space in that area when you're going in supraclavicularly. This is a fantastic line. This will get you definitive central access in two minutes, can be done blind, um, and even on very, very heavy patients, it's a relatively superficial line. It's only about kind of two centimeters down beneath the skin. It, it's definitely something that's worth looking into um, and becoming proficient at. If you've ever seen kind of um, IV drug users where they inject into their own necks down at the base of the kind of neck, what they're essentially doing on themselves is a uh, a blind um, supraclavicular subclavian access. If sub subclavian is out, I would then try and achieve femoral access. Um, and I generally do that as part of a kind of triple thread approach where I put in a central line, an arterial line, um, and a vascular catheter or a dialysis catheter all at the same time into the same vessel. 
Dialysis catheters are absolutely fantastic for large volume resuscitation. Each lumen can give you a flow rate of 500 mils a minute easily. So you can be getting a liter of flow a minute if you use both lumens, but they just, they're quite big. They can be quite cumbersome um, and they do require a little bit of extra training to insert and they do take a little bit of extra time. As a final word of advice, if you are achieving IV access um, and you are running a massive transfusion, one of the critical piece of advice I can give you is to take the bung or the needleless valve or the autoclave or whatever connector that you're using that has a lure lock on the end of it off and connect your IV fluids or your blood or your massive transfuser kind of distal line directly onto the cannula or onto the central line. There has been good evidence now, multiple studies showing that those needleless valves, they reduce your flow flow rates by about 30 to 40%. Um, so you're just you're leaving a huge amount of potential flow on the table by leaving those valves inside you. So all of the other lines that aren't having your master transfusion, fine, you can keep your bungs on them. But the line that the blood is going through, that line is stays completely open and the transfusion set gets hooked up directly to it. I suppose finally then it's probably worthwhile spending some time discussing um, this woman's hollow viscous injury. So this would be a very typical presentation of an atypical condition is how I would describe it. Um, About 95% of blunt abdominal trauma injuries are solid organ injuries and they're the kind of simple regular ones that we know how to manage and expect. It's the hollow viscous injuries, the mesenteric injuries, the pancreatic injuries and say the vascular injuries that tend to be the ones that are missed or tricky to manage. Hollow viscous injury only occurs in about 1% of patients. It's commonly overlooked. The patients themselves don't tend to present that sick. The physical exam findings are very insensitive. There's substantial debate over the sensitivity of CT in these patients. Um, And as a result, they tend to slip through the cracks. Um, And this is despite the fact that there's been good evidence shown that these patients actually do worse than patients with uh, solid organ injuries with, with similar Apache scores. In general, uh, you do need to maintain a high level of suspicion for hollow viscous injuries. Um, The key findings to look for would be seatbelt signs, which this woman had a chance fracture, which we did say this woman had uh, an anterior compression fracture of T10. I would be kind of discussing with my radiology colleagues here, asking them to reevaluate that in light of, you know, a seatbelt sign and a hyperflexion injury. Do we think there's a chance that this could be a a mixed bony and soft tissue uh, chance fracture here? And then a handlebar injury as well. The seatbelt sign itself is a relatively interesting kind of condition. Um, It was initially kind of described as ecchymosis across the anterior abdomen from the old fashioned lap belts that you would have in cars. Since the 1940s, then we had, you know, the usual three point restraints have kind of taken over as the main type of uh, seatbelt in a car. Um, and that has led to a kind of change in the injury comp, uh, injury pattern that we see from seatbelt signs. So there's now a, they're associated with interthoracic and particularly blunt cerebrovascular injuries um, of the neck as well. Well, then, of course, wider awareness of this term has led to kind of a reduction in the uh, specificity of the seatbelt sign itself. Um, and that's because, you know, minor abrasions and things like that are now getting considered as seatbelt signs when the original pattern uh, described was a big line of ecchymosis across the abdomen. 
Um, and depending on the definition that's being used for a seatbelt sign, obviously that can substantially alter the specificity and sensitivity of the actual diagnostic sign itself. Um, so that is just something worthwhile paying attention to when you're reading the literature on this. Um, generally speaking, though, the incidence of hollow viscous injury in patients with a seatbelt sign is about 10% in the modern literature. Um, the mechanism of injury here, it's a, it's a classic buckle handle um, type mechanism. So the mesentery gets squished up against the um, spine. It shears off from the bowel. That's why the patients look well when they first present, because all they have is just some sheared off mesentery. So there's no perforation. There's no laceration to the bowel wall or anything like that. But what happens then is over the next several hours, that segment of bowel will become ischemic and eventually perforate, developing a peritonitis. The classic teaching here was that CT was not sufficiently sensitive to assess for HVI, and so all seatbelt positive patients required admission for serial abdominal examination. But again, that's probably more in debate now. Modern helical CT scanners are capable of detecting the findings of hollow viscous injury. They only have about kind of 0.1% negative, um, false negative rate. But that means you have to know what to look for. There are no pathognomonic signs for hollow viscous injury. It's not like a liver lack where you're going to see a big tear straight through the liver. Um, instead, the findings themselves are relatively subtle. You're looking for some bowel wall edema. You're looking for a little bit of free fluid. You might see some uh, little bit of free air if they've got a perforation, but then they're kind of well beyond the extent of a simple HVI. Um, or you might see, say, a mesenteric hematoma and things like that. These are subtle findings, so the clinical brief that you give your radiology colleagues are absolutely essential, and I think the best thing that you can do when these kind of injuries are something that you're clinically suspicious for or within the differential diagnosis is to pick up the phone and call your radiologists and be like, look, that you know free fluid there, I can see it's down the pouch of Douglas, this patient is 30 years old, she's you know had recent menstruation, do we think that this is anything significant versus this free fluid, well, it is kind of, you know, it's pooled around the bowel itself. Um, it's not dependent. There is some bowel wall edema there as well. Do we think this could be an impending HVI? And I think that that uh, certainly as I've gotten older, the the discussion uh, that you have with your radiologists is, is something I've recognized as just increasingly critical to actually arriving at an accurate diagnosis for everything really. For the actual management of hollow uh, viscous injuries, the classic teaching would be that patients with any trace of free fluid or any symptoms would go for an exploratory laparotomy. This is based on the old EAST guidelines, um, which were published in the early noughties for blunt abdominal trauma. Those guidelines have since been um, retired and more modern guidelines have taken their place. But inter interestingly, uh, HVI got left out of the more modern guidelines, which means that they're kind of stuck in a weird middle ground. Um, I think most institutions would agree that these patients can now, with the accuracy of modern CT scanners, be managed expectantly. So you would admit them for 12 to 24 hours, perform serial abdominal exams, and then after that period, um, if the patient is asymptomatic, a trial of feeding. But the emphasis here would be that you'd need to maintain constant vigilance on them, frequent reassessment, and monitoring for signs of peritonism. And if peritonism develops at any point in time, the patient would proceed immediately for a laparoscopy. I do think it's important for us to know this. I'd be a great believer in the importance of ED physicians knowing the next step. And I think that knowing this about hollow viscous injuries can substantially help. And just like the 
kind of quality of a discussion that you'll have with an orthopedic register will be significantly different if you use the appropriate terminology. I find when you're referring um, patients on, it's much. Uh, I find it's much more beneficial if you can give a very clear differential, state what your concerns are and what your proposed management solutions are. You know, we, we've been kind of hammering this into NCHDs um, with regards to the ISPAR tool for years, but I do think it is something that we tend to fall down on on our referrals. We'll say kind of what the initial uh, impression is, but we don't kind of highlight our concerns or give management recommendations, which I understand the, the specialists are specialists at the end of the day. But similarly, if you can kind of take that cognitive load of having to differentiate the undifferentiated patient off the specialists, I do find that it tends to translate into better patient care. So for something like this, I would, you know, as I said, I would have a discussion with my radiology colleagues. We'd clarify exactly what we felt about that free fluid. Then when I was referring over to the surgeons, I would state the concern for the hollow viscous injury here. And I would ask them, um, you know, what, what would, you know, in terms of potential management solutions, it would be, are we going to go for an immediate diagnostic lap now? Do they want to do serial abdominal exams or do they want to do, you know, a delayed scan in eight hours time with oral and IV contrast to assess for progression and kind of highlighting the relevant guidelines and the relevant management suggestions if you can. You're not trying to beat somebody over the head with the guidelines or force their hand or twist their arm or something like that. But what you're trying to do is to serve up as much of the relevant information on a platter um, as possible so that the cognitive load is taken off them in terms of having to differentiate this patient or come up with a management plan themselves. And you're also kind of ensuring that the communication is as clear and concise as possible, which ensures that there is uh, no room for kind of an error to creep up in terms of a miscommunication or a misunderstanding of the uh, significance or concerns of certain pathologies or presentations. But yeah, overall, I think this was a really interesting case. There's a lot that we could talk about in it. I could probably keep talking on the the case and kind of trauma management in general for another hour if you'd let me. But I think we've kind of covered the main points. And as I said, really, really well done. Excellent resuscitation of this patient. A very kind of complex patient with a lot of plates to keep spinning in the air. But I think it was very, very well managed. And that's it for another episode of the Case.Report. Thanks to all of you again for tuning in. A special thanks to our adult in the room, Dr. Sean Crowen. Please get in touch and let us know what you think about anything you've heard. Find us on Twitter at The Case Report to join the discussion. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your shows. And if you like what you heard, give us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be ground. TCR out.